Salam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host Salim Person. And this week we thought to kick off uh, Islamophobia Awareness Month, which takes place um, annually in November. Uh, we would talk to Asim Qureshi from Cage. Um, Cage is, is to read from their website. Cage is an independent grassroots organization striving for a free world of injustice and oppression. We campaign against discriminatory state policies and advocate for due process and the rule of law. Um, Cage have been around, um, I think, pretty much, they formed soon after 9-11 and have been kind of active in advocating for the kind of human rights of uh, detainees at Guantanamo and, and, you know, various other sort of campaigns and causes. Um, So Asim Qureshi is the research director, I believe, at Cage, um, and has written a book called A Virtue of Disobedience. Uh, he was kind enough to send out his book to us a couple of weeks ago. Um, I read through as much of it as I could um, before we spoke, but I, I, as I was reading it, I took it with me on, on holiday and on, on the flight back, I, I managed to, to get through quite a lot of it. And I had a pen with me and I was just kind of underlining bits that I found interesting. And it got to a point where I was just scribbling in the book and underlining loads of bits um, and was very much looking forward to actually discussing a lot of this stuff with Asim. Personally for me um, it's very refreshing to see someone approach kind of um, political issues, current affairs and and being very active and you know the kind of um, being a quote-unquote activist um, but their kind of ideology being firmly embedded in Islamic principles um, and that's something that I was very keen to kind of discuss with him and talk further about and it didn't disappoint to be honest this was one of my my favorite um, conversations that I've had um, on this podcast we usually try and keep the length of the, of the conversations to about 45 minutes to an hour um, but in this particular case we ended up running on and I I was aware of the time but I just there was so much we wanted to kind of talk about and discuss um, yeah I really hope you enjoy the conversation um, please do give us feedback let us know what you think um, but without further ado here's my conversation with Asim Qureshi so salam Asim thank you very much for joining us on the podcast before we get into the meat of what we want to talk about mm-hmm. I thought we'd start by uh, sharing the story of, of what happened when I tried to go to Dubai with your book <laughs> so <laughs> innocently um, I so, so your, your book is called A Virtue of Disobedience All right. um, and I tweeted it um, I tweeted a, a picture of the book mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, you know, going to Dubai, going to enjoy this book on my journey. Um, and normally the author at times would favorite it or retweet it, depending on how big they are and how, you know, whatever. Sure. You instead direct message me. <laughs> um, and do you mind repeating roughly what you said? I was like, you might want to take that down, bro. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> not, not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. Um... So I, I worked on a case of a, a Qatari citizen who was detained in the Emirates. Yeah. Um, and he was being kept in a secret detention facility there. So we finally managed to get in touch with one of his guards who was, seemed like, a, he's a Nepalese man. He seemed like a really decent person. And he was like letting us know, okay, look, he's being held in a secret detention site. I can't tell you much. I just want to let you know that he's okay. So we were with the family while this is going on. So we induce 
this guard to come over to Qatar with promises that we will help him, which obviously we did yeah. uh, help him and his family and so on and so forth. Um, and then we found the location of the secret detention facility, which happened to be opposite the Qatari embassy, ironically. And they were they were torturing our, our client there. So when the client, when we finally released all of this publicly, the client was finally brought into the public and he was given a trial. But at the trial, his son attended the trial in the Emirates and um, they took the son out of the court and started beating him up. And the questions they were asking were about me and my colleagues at Cage and other people. So uh, it was after that, I kind of, you know, took the hint that I probably would be persona non grata mm. uh, in the Emirates. Um, and so kind of like, you know, I was a bit worried. I that, would have been guilty by association. Yeah, you know, kind of publicly declaring that you were kind of reading my book. Well, you left it a bit late whatever. because I was on the plane at the time. I didn't know, bro. Uh, when you were messaging me and you were like, yeah, you might want to delete Twitter, delete my message, delete. I was like, oh my God, I, I did not sign up. For hey, this. look, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just worry about people, you know. I, I was sure that nothing would happen, but still. Yeah. No, I, I get know. I know, I appreciate it. Doing that. that on my conscience. But yeah. as I said, it's, it's definitely a first where I've tweeted almost positively about someone or something and they've been like, can you take this down for you? own safety um so thank you for the heads up no but i guess that also leads nicely and obviously you've given a bit of background to some of the work that you do mm-hmm. um but cage mm-hmm. as an organization which you're the director of i believe uh, i'm the research director research director um whenever people talk about cage either mm-hmm. it's a very kind of uh unknown response like people and i you know when i i've told people that i'm, oh, I'm interviewing awesome Qureshi from cage mm-hmm. they're like who and what mm-hmm. is the response or it's just like, oh, like, be careful. Yeah, I mean, it depends on which kind of communities. You exactly, kind of, yeah, and which kind of circles right. you're in. Um, but I wanted to understand, and I guess for people that haven't come across CAGE before, mm-hmm. um, what CAGE is, what the work is that they do, and also what's the kind of perceived controversy around CAGE? Sure, okay. Well, I, I mean, I think the place to start is really 2003, where you've got um, men who are detained in these orange jumpsuits being denied due process uh, at Guantanamo Bay at that time, many of whom, uh, or a number of whom were British. Um, and in those in that, that early 2002-2003 period, uh, a group of activists uh, from South London, um, they had gone to the various different Muslim organizations saying, look, you know, there's, there's men being detained by the US without mm. charge or trial in this place. You know, we should advocate, we should do something, including the biggest Muslim organizations in, in the UK. Uh, unfortunately, the response was, was quite poor. Mostly it was, well, there's no smoke without fire. And if these men are being detained by the US, yeah. they're, then they're probably terrorists, which, of course, it turns out the vast majority of them never were. Um, but yeah, CAGE really comes out of that. To It started with the mission to advocate on behalf of these people who are detained without charge or trial to try and kind of redress some of the imbalance that the war on terror has created where Muslims uh, throughout the whole world are securitized, mm. where their lives are turned upside down by these kind of national security policies. And so, yeah, that was the emphasis really um, in those early days to tell the stories of these men, to kind of learn about who they were, to, um, to put their um, actual lives into the public domain so people could see, well, it's not just, um, you know, kind of a principle here. There are human beings whose lives have been yeah. affected. And I think Cage has done that very successfully, you know, since 2003, since we started, really providing an alternative analysis to the mainstream in terms of how we understand who who Muslims are, what they're about, and, you know, how they come to be the people that they are and the situations that they're in. Some of that causes controversy, though, because, of course, 
uh, not all of our clients are innocent of being involved in political violence. Some of them are. And part of what Cage is trying... Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. You said political violence. Right. Do you not use the term terrorism? I prefer not to. I'm, I'm not completely against using it. And I have used it myself at times as well. Mm. But the reason why, because, you know, I think terrorism is an, it's an incomplete term. It doesn't capture the full extent of what is taking place. I think political violence as a term more accurately captures what's happening. Mm. Um, because terrorism, you know, when we, when, when we say the word terrorism, what we're doing is we're evoking a very state-centric narrative about what terrorism is. It, in popular imagination, what doesn't uh, occur to most people is the kind of acts of violence that the state is responsible state for. Yeah. yeah, which is, you know, equally terrorism, like dropping barrel bombs yeah. on, on, on the uh, heads of innocent people. So... Uh, that's why I prefer political violence because okay. I think it more accurately describes what's what the process of what's actually taking place, and so you know at times what we want to do is we say, well, you know let's understand, let's see what's going on here in my in my kind of more personal work where you know because I'm not actually full time at Cage it's a it's a, I mean you know it's a significant amount of time I give to it but I actually do a lot of consultancy work outside of Cage too. So legal teams, they hire me in order to help them do what's known as build multi-generational social histories, uh, especially in death penalty cases. Mm. And those death penalty cases, especially in the U.S., what they want, what the U.S. court wants to know is what are all the multi-generational reasons why this person came to be the person that they are yeah. and why they carried out this particular act of violence? Because those types of violence where you have mass casualties, you know, it requires a, a certain type of mindset that develops through kind of multi-causal reasons. You can't just limit it to ideology, which is some, unfortunately what the vast majority of like state-centric narratives try to do, that, oh, it's because they hate our freedoms. It's never that simple. So myself and my colleagues at CAGE, we try to complicate the ideas around, you know, where this violence comes from so that we don't just replicate these kind of racist ideas about, you know, oh, Muslims just hate us because of who we are and our, our ways of life. It's just mm. never that simple. You you actually mentioned in the book, you talk about the, the cycle of trauma and violence. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was very interesting. And as you said, and, and even you mentioned with the work that Cage is doing, um, bringing the kind of more holistic and human element to it, um, it, it's very fascinating and, and that's why like as I, I before I read the book I was like okay we need to get a podcast on this because I knew it was going to be fascinating but honestly it kind of exceeded my expectations in terms of and we're going to talk about the various layers and, and, and aspects to it but one thing specifically for me um, was the notion of um, I guess Islam and Islamic principles at the heart of the activism at the heart of the work that you're doing so it's not just a case of taking up kind of political stances against the government for the sake of it. Right. Um, but actually, there's kind of a, a virtue to the disobedience, if I can butcher your title. Um, but but there, there is an element of like there is something at play here. And throughout the book, you kind of weave a narrative and you always you're always alluding back to the Quran, to the prophetic tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that's very fresh for me, at least. I don't see that a lot when people talk about activism. Yeah, sure. I mean, inshallah, I think it's something that's coming through increasingly. Yeah. Uh, probably the most amazing part of having written the book is the sheer volume of especially young people who have written back to me, you know, kind of amazing. university students and yeah. said, we didn't think that you could write something that was kind of academically sound 
that quotes from Fanon and Malcolm X and James Baldwin and write up, you know, kind of sourcing the Quran within the same passages, yeah. you know, with complete like ease. Effort, doing yeah, so. effortless. I mean, well, well, yeah. I mean, because uh, for me, it's like, you know, I don't secularize my faith, yeah. you know, and I, I'm trying to get that ethic across in the book as well, that the Quran for us is, is a source that trumps, you know, nearly all other sources. Mm. And just because some other traditions have maybe described something in a way that is useful to us, it doesn't mean that those ethics, they don't sit within our traditions too. And so I guess that's part of what I'm trying to get across to say that, you know, all of this stuff around racism, around authoritarianism, actually our own traditions have responses to all of this. We don't need to be embarrassed by our own tradition. We don't have to be embarrassed when we mention ayah of the Quran. Mm. You know, this is our source. It's yeah, something yeah. That, that we believe in, like the sanctity of, that this is truth. And so if it's our truth, then we should be able to cite it without 100%. any problem. And there's something that you mentioned which really resonated with me um, in the book. You talk about not wanting to punch out at the end of your activism day mm-hmm. um, and punch into the punch into the mosque um, for my spirit is, right. is what you say. It's just I, I wrote it down, so I didn't <laughs> still manage to mess it up. Um, but that notion I find fascinating as well because I almost feel like um, people kind of segment it's like you go to the mosque you pray you listen to a khutbah you that's your spiritual rejuvenation Mm -hmm. then you go out you work you spend time with your family you do your activism and that's your kind of all those different bits but actually um as muslims a kind of islamic perspective on it is that everything is to do with our spirituality everything um is is a part of one Mm -hmm. and i feel like um and i think you mentioned like a you went to the mosque and and the 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 sheikh was talking about um, not standing up to the oppressor oppressor and how we shouldn't yeah and and things like that and I, I get very frustrated as well when when I find that our centers are very apolitical um, and they're like oh you know we because they don't want there's various reasons they don't want to rock the boat right post nine eleven and that's something that we we can also talk about but post nine eleven everything's under a microscope yeah and so just being our authentic selves. Um, is is difficult and problematic. In fact, let's let's discuss nine eleven. So, you there's a line which I've written down again. I'm just going to read it out to you. Um, it feels weird, by the way, reading back something that you've written, but I'll, I'll read it anyway. You say, but today there's an entire generation of young Muslims, those who are younger than thir- those who are younger than sixteen, when the World Trade Center attack of two thousand and one took place, they have only ever known a political reality where they where they are labeled as being potential future threats. Now, I guess the question I have for you, because I fit into that bracket. Okay. Um, what was the what was the political reality for Muslims in the West or in the UK before then? Yeah, sure. I mean... Assuming I, you're a little bit older than yeah, me. Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying everything was completely perfect yeah. um, in the 90s, especially. Um, I, I remember the 80s well. I remember running away from skinheads. Uh, during the 80s, getting fights to, with skinheads during the 80s. Um, uh, and now you are one. Sorry? And and, you are. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm bald-headed man. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> classify myself as a skinhead. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's cool. Um, you know, in the 90s, you could see a, a, a relaxing of that type of very, very visceral racism uh, in, you know, certain parts of society. Like people, mm. I think they started to kind of get over it a little bit. Um, not to say that racism had gone away. Racism was still a very normal part of many people's lives. So I don't want to diminish the the the, the real impact that was taking place. Yeah. 
Uh, but I also remember when I was running away from skinheads, I, my black friends were running alongside me. Uh, 9-11, I think, changed things in many ways in the sense that there was a complete hegemony within society of a narrative that problematized uh, Muslims. And for young Muslims growing up in that environment where the political class are problematizing you, where um, your your teachers are problematizing you, you know, the stuff that you're studying in school is about how much of a, a problem your people are causing. Mm. Um, the police are suspecting you. The judges are giving you higher sentences. Um, there are layers to all the trauma. Of course, the media, there are layers to all of this trauma. To what our youth were receiving from the general public and from the state itself yeah that i think is exceptional you know and you know i'm nostalgic for a world that existed before then even though that world wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination mm. but i can't imagine really what it must be like properly to not ever even have i have seen that world to have only grown up in a world where you are a problem yeah for society a problem that needs to be controlled that needs to be um de-radicalized or kept away from radicalization you're always spoken about as being a potential future problem yeah you know you got images like that in in france uh on the the covers of magazines where it has a a muslim woman in a veil kind of with a uh who's pregnant and you know the title is you know the islamic bomb yeah so that's the world that you know our youth have grown up with in this but I mean, like, you know, and you yourself can probably speak to that. Now but you're, you're what I was going to say is that, like, <laughs> I feel that there's a there's a kind of reality to what you're saying. But also from from my own pers- perspective, I see it in a similar way to you, because although I don't remember a political reality pre 9-11, I do remember that moment of suddenly we are now the bad guys. Okay, right. I, that, that was like and that was a, I think that. And how old were you when that happened? I was 2001. I was 11. Okay, right. Um, so you were aware that I was aw- things have changed. Now. I was aware. I was oh, wow. aware. And the okay. thing is, I think that's it. Like that was when we woke up, and right. suddenly in school, people are asking me about Muslims and why we're like this and why we right. do this and why we're responsible for terrorism. Right. Um, right. But I, this is the thing. So I look at so my own daughter's now one. Mm-hmm. I think the world that she's going to grow up in is like a post post like nine eleven. Is just a is it is it almost like day one. Right. You know. And now we're, you know, she's going to be what, 10, 15 years, well, what, like 30 years down the line from it, mm-hmm. whatever. And she's going to be kind of active in, inshallah in the community and whatever else. And there's not going to be that. I can think and, and imagine a world in the 90s, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think there's going to be a, a potential for young people yeah. to really be able to grasp it. And like you mentioned, the university students that are reading your book, for example, mm-hmm. they would all have, have probably not even been born almost yeah you know what i mean there'll be toddlers at the time when when this all happened so it's 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 quite amazing that i think a lot of this stuff and a lot of the work we've been doing with the muslim vibe and when i speak to people 9-11 is is very much like a a a seminal moment in terms of just what it's meant in terms of kick-starting their activism or they're getting involved and getting engaged in the religion whatever it might be Mm -hmm. um it's it's very interesting and and I think there's one thing I wanted to come back to. I've heard you mention it before, but I think it's quite important. Um, but you, you were doing your master's, I believe, in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, you wanted to become a corporate lawyer. Yes, right. What was it that at that time, and this obviously is like two years on from 9-11, mm-hmm. the world is like crazy at this time. Yeah. But what was it that made you say, actually, you know what, I want to dedicate and devote a large portion of my time and life 
um, to to working on victims of the war on terror? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it's definitely the images of of men with their hands shackled behind their backs on their knees with mm. hoods over their head, of their heads. Um, you know, almost like in a in a, in a submissive submissive position um, in front of these American guards in these weird chicken wire cages in Guantanamo. Yeah. I mean, that as somebody who had in his last year of university studied public international law, when I saw those images, um, it I wouldn't say it frightened me. It just made me think that like. You know, how is it possible that this is going on? And, and because, like, I was studying public international, I was, like, very passionate about it, too. Mm. I was thinking, like, well, international law says X. How can they, how can they simply get, a, get away with it? So I spent, so I started uh, my, the first day of my master's. I changed all of my subjects to kind of uh, international law, the laws of war, foreign relations, just because of this one thing. Uh, it was actually a bit weird because I think a few months in, my mother comes into my room and she's just like... Um, None of your books say corporate law in your bookshelf. They're all saying things like <laughs> laws of war and international law. What's going on? I was like, yeah, funny story that. Yeah, I might have changed my uh, my mind about what I wanted to do. So did life. you? Did you at that point you just completely change direction? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I uh, I just couldn't see myself, um, you know, sitting in you know kind of these big corporations mm. doing this stuff. For the rest of my life, uh, knowing what was going on in the world, you know, and alhamdulillah, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives people opportunities. Yeah. Now, you know, we, we like to think that we have lots of agency in the decision making processes. I, you know, I don't see it that way. I just see it as this is part of your risk mm. that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you an opportunity to maybe see something in a way that other people didn't and then p- provides you opportunities to get involved with that thing too. Mm-hmm. Then it's up to you whether or not you take those opportunities yeah, because, yeah. you know, all of us, we could go down many, many different ways to re- receive the risk that we have. Uh, but part of that risk is even the knowledge that we receive and then what you do with that knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. we, don't, we think of people with like a hundred million pounds worth of, of cash uh, as being given a lot of risk. And then we judge them according to how much they then give back to, to other people, to poor people, to other communities. But we don't see somebody who's being given like a hundred million pounds worth of risk as something that they should be judged by. We don't see them as, as people who should be giving back in the same way. But, mm-hmm. you know, knowledge is such a huge part of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses to bless us. I mean, we weren't, we have been raised as like fishermen off the coast of Somalia or farmers in Afghanistan, right? Like that could have been us so yeah. easily, right? We could be anybody else within the Ummah, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose us specifically to receive certain types of knowledge. And I feel like we have such a huge duty towards that knowledge yeah. to then give back in whatever way. I'm not saying that everyone who goes out and does corporate law is like committing a sin. That's not mm-hmm. what I'm saying. It's about, okay, you have now been placed in a certain place and position with given a certain type of knowledge. What do you do with that now? How do you give back? How how do you exercise altruism with what you've been given? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think that's and and it's been spoken about probably to death on this podcast by by various different guests. And I've had this conversation, but it's always a case of people trying to you know. Again, I'm I'm lucky, alhamdulillah, that I have the opportunity to to work on the Muslim vibe. Right. Um, we've got a fantastic team and we have the opportunity to be creating content mm-hmm. that's for the Muslim community. And that's one element of service that I can do on a kind of regular basis. But a lot of people struggle with the notion of, OK, I, I am now a corporate lawyer. Right. Um, we usually pick on accountants, but we're not going to. One of our one of our most avid listeners is an accountant and he always has a go at me. <laughs> so 
I am a corporate lawyer. Yeah. Um, I work long hours. I have a family. How do I give back? Yeah. Um, and that's always the difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's something that people we have to struggle with our whole lives, as you mentioned. And coming back to the notion of spirituality not just being a case of going to the mosque. Right. It's in everything that you do. So it's about finding time, about making time, even to contribute and give towards your faith, towards your brothers, whatever it might be. Right. Absolutely. Um. I wanted to to look at a couple of uh, the stories that you mentioned in the book. Sure. Um, the first one is about Muhammad Rabbani. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll allow you to kind of tell the story. Yeah, sure. Uh, but what was interesting for me, and this is one of the things I liked about the book, is that you you made a link between him um, and Rosa Parks. Right. Now, again, whether I agree or disagree with that notion, mm-hmm. I just think it's interesting that we're kind of looking at people that are working and advocating in the kind of civil rights space today mm-hmm. um, as as being like those who came before us mm-hmm. um, who were doing similar kind of things and, and acts of disobedience um, against the law right. um, based on their own kind of moral judgment. And, and I do this a lot, I apologize, but I'm going to ask a question as well to answer after you tell the story. Sure, no worries. Um, but with regards to to the law today and and the Muslim community, um, I get a sense that people feel that we've come to a point where we're in a a civil society. You know, everything has settled down. Colonialism is in our past. Slavery is in our past. Things Mm -hmm. are good. Um, Do you feel that till today, or do you feel that today, um, Muslims are kind of okay with the law and they feel like being a law and this is the thing I don't think there's a connection between or people don't see a difference between be, being law-abiding and being moral right um, and that's where when you talk about political violence as well it's very interesting because there are flashpoints in history like the Iraq war where we saw you know two million people march in London Th- those two million people saw the acts of the government as being immoral mm-hmm. even though they were potentially legal I mean that's dubious in itself but yeah, uh, your comment on that, but after the whole Muhammad Rabbani story. So I'm going to start my response by providing what I think might look like a contradiction, Yeah, which is I think that the UK is one of the easiest places to practice Islam in the world at the moment. At the same time, it is uh, a society that is full of racism. Uh, and those two things... Um, exist simultaneously alongside one another yep. all the time. Um, this is home. You know, th- th- I'm, I'm not like here welcomed from somewhere else. Like I've got nowhere else to go. This mm. is, this has always been home for me. When I start seeing signs for London, you know, if I go ever go outside of it, coming back in that, you know, that Sakina that you get mm. in your heart that just like, you know, you feel that like sense of tranquility. I'm going to be back in my bed. I'm going to be back in my area. You know, these are all signs of what home is. Right? I think as stressful as the airport experience can be. Yeah. Touching down in Heathrow is a nice feeling. Right. Right. Because you're coming back home. Yeah. Right. So home is something that you feel. It's a matter of like, you know, the heart itself. And so, you know, I, I, I say these words in order to preface my comments about Rabani's case because what's been taken away from us is this idea that this is home because we're subjected, especially as Muslims now, to a two-tier system where we have to constantly uh, be at the mercy of a a legal structure 
that exceptionalizes us in so many ways. So for example, if you look at the, the over 100 citizenship deprivation cases that have taken place, the vast majority of them are Muslim. In fact, I only know of one non-Muslim case, which is the Russian spy Anna Chapman. But other than that, all the other cases of these people have had their citizenships removed so far seemingly seem to be Muslim. Mm. Um, but of course, the most important one that happens to us on a daily basis is Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act 2000. That is the power to detain you at a port under terrorism legislation, to take your fingerprints, to take your DNA, to photograph you, to ask you questions. If you refuse to answer, you have committed an act of terrorism. That is the power that they have. If I could go outside right now, kill somebody in the street, and everyone is watching me, and I have more rights in that moment than I do when I'm stopped at an airport. I have the right to silence if I killed somebody right in, in the street in front of everybody. Mm. I have a complete right of silence in that. I have a right to a lawyer in that situation. I have the right to be able to, ha to defend myself. If I get stopped at an airport and they ask me, uh, where have you come from? And say, I refuse to answer. They will arrest me for terrorism and they will charge me for terrorism. They will convict me of having committed a terrorist act. And what's happened is that we have now, because being stopped at the airport has become such a regular part of our life that we have started to okay it as a system. Yeah. By that, we have regularized ourselves to the fact that this is uh, taking place. So now we see like comedy shows where they make fun of the fact that all oh, Muslims are getting stopped. I mean, they're critiquing it, of course, that they're getting stopped, but it's almost become so normal, such a normal part of our life that we now started joking about it in a kind of a black humor. Um, We've also regularized it by turning up earlier to airports than any other community. No other community talks about... Uh, is that like a factual thing? Or yeah, is absolutely. So many of the people that we've spoken to say we get to the airport five hours earlier than the flight. Wow. Um, whereas, of course, it's normally three hours. I don't speak to... Nobody from any other community says that I'm getting to the airport five hours in advance because I'm worried about getting stopped at the airport now. We have internalized a, 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 a piece of legislation within our daily lives that harms us, that is racist in its nature because it's suspicionless. They stop you without any suspicion whatsoever. They stop you based on a pathology of what they see as problematic, which is our skin color, it's our names, it's the countries we travel to. These are all superficial markers mm. and therefore it's a profiling exercise. So they say it's necessary, right? Uh, and we even have many liberals who seemingly defend us against Islamophobia, who say that this is a necessary trade-off. Yeah. They never make that trade, though. Only we do. You know, when these liberals say to you, okay, and say to us that, oh, well, we have to strike a balance between national security and civil rights, it's not your civil rights you're giving up. It's ours. We feel the harm of it. We feel the effects of it. You know, our kids are the ones who are being taken aside as we're being led into interrogation rooms. That's who's being affected. And they never forget that. They never forget that this takes place. It lives with them for the rest of their lives that this happened. Somebody from the state, they took my father aside, they took my mother aside and they started. And we're talking about tens of thousands of people each year. And so when Rabani and I are in Qatar working on a very sensitive uh, case of a man who had been tortured for 13 years, kept in solitary confinement for almost 13 years of his life in America, where the complicity of the FBI, where a very senior FBI, former FBI agent who was complicit, not only complicit, was actively involved in his torture, where we're about to expose him. 
I've gone through 27,000 pages of interrogation logs that we managed to get leaked out of America. I've like sat in one room for a week going through these logs line by line, making uh, a, the case of how these agents were involved in this man's torture. We have all of this data. Um, and when Rabani gets stopped, he's got the information on his laptop. And they say, you know, we want access to your laptop. He says, I can't give it. I can't give it because... I have client-sensitive information. They said, we don't care. You have to give us the passwords to your vices. And he says, no. And Rubani doesn't just say no. He tries to give them so many ways out. He says, look, let release me. Let me speak to my client. Keep hold of my materials. I've given my password to my lawyer. Let me speak to my client. Let me get permission from my client that they are okay with you as the police seeing it. And if they okay that, if, if my client okays that because it's his data, then I will give instructions to my lawyer who has my password now to give that password to you. Mm. But, so he tried many different ways to accommodate the fact that this legislation has this ability to be so, so violent in the circumstance. But they refused. They just said, no, we want it. We want it right now. And so they charged him and ultimately they convicted him. And that's why when I talk about Rabani in the same breath as Rosa Parks, it's to say that this is a man who was willing to go to prison because there is a potential custodial sentence at the end of refusing to comply. It's a three-month sentence you can get for refusing to comply mm. with Schedule 7. And he was willing to go to prison for the sake of protecting his own client, right? And I think that is a remarkable thing in this day and age when we are taught to, to put ourselves first. We live in this kind of very hyper-capitalist world where our own self-sanctity, our, self, our own self-happiness means so much. For somebody to say to themselves, I am willing to go to jail for the sake of protecting somebody who has been harmed. I think that's a remarkable thing. And that's why like, I have so much admiration for him for doing yeah. that in that moment. And I think I remember this, this case. I remember seeing it publicly. And this is, this is, these are some of the things where mm -hmm. when I see something like that, The Guardian covering it, and then there's mention of Cage, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, these guys are at it again. I'll right. be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of perception. Oh, the coverage was good, though, from The Guardian. It, we had really positive coverage, which was surprising, actually, considering what you're saying. Right? Yeah. That sometimes there's some a negative connotation, right? Mm. Especially from like the Times and the Telegraph and so on and so yeah. forth. But, you know, what was amazing about this case, of course, was that, um, you know, The Guardian gave it excellent. Ewan McCaskill from The Guardian did brilliant coverage on the case. Um, you know, the, the Intercept did really wonderful coverage on the case. Uh, and even actually those who usually come from kind of the, the other side, mm -hmm. so, you know, the right-wing uh, yeah, yeah, tabloids yeah. and broadsheets, even they had to acknowledge that there was a, a civil liberties issue at stake here, mm. which I think is quite remarkable, considering the fact that one of Cage's directors was being convicted of, of an act of having committed yeah. a terrorist offence. So, I mean, obviously, like, you might have had a different reading, but, but for it, us, it no, was surprising. It, listen, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a case of the coverage, because mm. I always, you always know the coverage is going to be, there's, gonna, right. there's an agenda at play, but just that, okay, there's a Cage story out here, right. and it's not a pretty one. Yeah. Um, and... and Again, people will look at that and be like, oh, you know, these guys, they're mischief makers. Yeah. They're always up to trouble, always trying something. But but the thing yeah. is, when you hear the intricacies of what you've mentioned, yeah. it's just like, well, I don't think I would have, I don't know if I'd have been strong enough to do what he did, but I would have probably wanted to do the same thing. And if it means that, you know, there is a a sentence or a conviction at the end of it, I mean, the, the, there's a greater agenda at play here. You know, people are always asking, um, me or saying to me you know maybe if you use more reasonable language mm. um you know 
they might accept your message better because what you're doing is right. Like everything that you, we agree with, everything that you guys are doing, but yeah, maybe yeah, if yeah. you were just a little bit more reasonable about how you present it, mm. then it might be accepted better. So I've got, you know, I have some responses to that, which I talk about in the book, which is how can we be reasonable with systems of racism? Like mm. there, there should be no reasonable about uh, reasonableness about it. Racism is racism, regardless who's perpetuating, whether it's brown skin people like me who are perpetuating that, you know, and giving cover to racist policies like uh, Sajid Javed and others, right? They need to be called out for being complicit mm. um, in racism. But also, who gets to decide at what point too much is too much? Yeah. Because I've heard this from the Muslim community on many occasions where they say, well, you know, it's not ideal, but, you know, we need to sh show reasonableness in being kind of in talking about these programs. So like prevent, for example, I say, OK, fine. You want to be reasonable about, about it and you want to show publicly that you're reasonable. Let me bring to you somebody who's been adversely affected by prevent. I want you to stand before this person and I want you to say this person that all of this hurt, all of this trauma that you that they feel in their life because of what's happened to them, that you felt they were a, worth pri uh, a price worth paying. Are you willing to do that? Because at CAGE, we, we, we start from a very, very simple position, which is even if there's only one person who's adversely affected, even if they're a non-Muslim, whoever they are, even if they're the most hated person in society, if the law is wrong and it and is immoral in the way that it's constructed and it ad adversely affects them, then that person must be represented. It doesn't matter about what our personal opinion. I've represented people I absolutely despise. Like I, I, I say that wholeheartedly that I, there are some clients that I've represented that I really don't like them at all. Mm. But it doesn't stop me from, you know, advocating against their torture. Like I, because torture for me is an ethic that I will never ever be able to, uh, my anti-torture ethic is one that I won't be able to push past. And that's why, you know, it's it's very frustrating to hear conversations about reasonableness because I think what people don't see is the human harm that happens yeah. to those who are being, uh, being affected. And I think if we're going to look for a more just society, we have to get over this this kind of very, this become a very Muslim response of, oh, well, you know, we have to play the game. We have to play ball. But you're, by, by you're acknowledging the fact that the system is skewed against you. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this leads on to the comments I made before the, the story about uh, Brother Abani. Um, how do you perceive the Muslim community's um, response to law or like perception of law today? I think... I think like, people. Do you think it's accurate what I was saying earlier? Yeah, I do. I do think it's accurate. Um, I think m people want to just get on with their lives, right? Until the moment they're affected by something adversely. To, to bury their head in the sand type thing. Yeah, of course. But I mean, who isn't like that? Most people are like that. Most people just want to, you know, live their best halal life, right? Mm. Want to go on your halal holidays. Want to have halal food. Want to have halal fashion. It's. It's. I mean, it's. It's a halal version of neoliberalism, right? Because it's about us as individuals and enjoying our life to the to the ab absolute maximum that we can. Yeah. Um, and it also becomes very in a weird way ethnocentric. And I mean, what I mean by that was or national centric, which is okay. It's about the lives that we're living here in the UK. Yeah. But we disconnect ourselves from so much of what's going on in the wider world. So you might say, I go to Primark. I have a halal tra transaction with Primark. 
that this is me and Prime. And I write about this in the book, actually, that, you know, we think that this is okay. Yeah. You know, it's a transaction between me and I, it's just one contract, no problem. But the, the contract that sits behind that contract is the one between Primark and the sweatshop in Bangladesh, right? Now, can we still say, when we know that the sweatshop worker, his, his choice in life is you, you accept the slave wage or you die, Mm. Can we honestly say that our contract with them is still is still one that is permitted, that is still halal, that is still tayyib, okay, as, you know, we're required to think about what we wear and what we eat and what we drink. But we're not thinking about this stuff because we have very, very kind of narrow conceptions of what is legal, mm. both from a Western lens and from an Islamic lens, yeah. right? We think of legalism too, too uh, narrowly. And what we miss is actually how... There are all sorts of being people being harmed that might not affect us today, but it's affecting us all the time. And it's affecting our spirituality too. Mm. I think this disconnect that we feel from other people ultimately has an effect on our spirit. How can it not? That, you, that you're willing to be stopped at airports and you're just like, oh, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. So, you know, it's something that might, you know, it, you know, it didn't really have that much an effect yeah. on my life. But it has a negative effect on other people. Right, so you should care about that because you should care about other people too. It's it's also you mentioned in the book the witness of uh, the witness the the notion of being a witness, right. um, and how w- as we witness things we should either act or feel or you know at, at the worst or not the worst but like you know the base level yeah. it's just that it should affect our hearts. Right, and I, I feel like um, not to try and justify for people, but you know we're constantly battered by just such an onslaught of of discrimination and of um, persecution against Muslims and, you know, the laws and things like Schedule 7, for example, um, that it becomes difficult to care, right? right. And that's also like, you know, as, as amazing as social media is, um, it becomes very hard when you just see one video after another of things happening to our brothers and sisters around the world, and even not even Muslim brothers and sisters, but just humanity, um, it becomes very difficult to like constantly care. Mm -hmm. And and before it used to be a case of you would turn off the news and that's it. But now you turn off the news, you turn on your phone and you're just getting it even, like I remember the the morning that we woke up to the the Christchurch massacre, Mm -hmm. uh, the video was sent to me like 10 times. Right in 10 different groups from 10 right. different people. Right. And it's just like, I don't like, as much as it's heartbreaking what's happened and, and you know, we, we, we need to address this, like the video shouldn't be circulated the way it is. Right. But there's, we've become so desensitized to seeing people mm-hmm. killed indiscriminately that it's just like, oh yeah, like have you seen the latest video type thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing, I, I, I firmly believe that it has a very negative effect on our hearts. Um, and and it, it has our hearts have become hardened by kind of seeing these things, and, and I guess it's something that you dealing with victims of abuse and of torture, um, it must be difficult, I guess, to to really connect with it sometimes emotionally, right? Because you have to just detach. Yeah, I mean, not so much my clients, but I think uh, I do suffer from a bit of secondary trauma in the sense that. I find people's normal everyday problems much more difficult to connect with. Mm. You know, alhamdulillah, like, you know, my, my wife is very, very good at like keeping me humane. You know, she's constantly talking to me and reminding me that, look, you know, people's everyday problems are real for them, right? You need to just kind of remember yeah. that, not place everybody in a sliding scale of oppression, right? And that's really important for us to to keep the, our, our hearts alive to that, to that idea that as human beings, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests us all individually 
You test yeah. it in different in different ways. You know, I remember, uh, you know, almost breaking down in front of somebody uh, who had been in torture for many many years, and he was saying to them, maybe Allah Subhanahu wa Taala doesn't think of me as a good Muslim who's able to take a lot because I wasn't tortured like other people were. And I'm like, Subhanallah, like if I had been through half of what you've been through, I'd have been I'd have lost my mind completely, wow. right? Yeah. So you know, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala does test people according to their own situation, and we have to find ways of, of course, being uh, aware of that. Um, but like you said, um, it's about maintaining our spirituality to what we, what the lives that we're living, mm. right? And finding ways of making sure that we don't disconnect. And part of that is jama, right? Like, you know, meeting with one another, getting out of this, um, you know, kind of social media world where it's just become reduced to likes dislikes you know there is a certain kind of um kind of weird capitalism that's involved in just like a liking system mm. you know everything just becomes okay all right yeah well i've liked that issue i've shared it that's enough instant right? gratification we, right? instant gratification uh it's very much about us in yeah. some ways as much as it is about the issue yeah you know how do we move past that and i think that those are the kind of questions that i think i'm beginning to ask in the book i don't necessarily provide very strict answers for it yeah. but what i do what i'm i'm hoping for inshallah is that people will engage in this idea that um the world is not okay and that we are players in that world we have we have responsibilities to the world that we see we are witnesses to it mm-hmm. but also ultimately we have to stand before allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and say i lived in the world that you that you placed me in with the specific resources and capabilities that you decided that I should have. Mm. And I have an answer that's adequate that, you know, before you, when I finally meet you, that says that, you know, I met a threshold. Inshallah, I met a threshold that was enough to to be forgiven for living in this world, you know, and seeing everything. Because we're not, we're not fishermen, you know. Fishermen, they they just have to worry about if the fish is going to be in the sea and whether or not the weather time. whether or not the yeah the weather's going to be okay yeah, for them yeah, to yeah. do so like they that you know when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala withholds that fish from them like being patient and seeing it through like that's their test you know like, we don't have that test we just go down to the shop and we buy our food mm. it, for us something as simple as eating is just so simple but our test comes through that ease that we have yeah. that we have so much that we see and that we're capable of doing and yet, you know, are we using that to its maximum point of altruism? And, you know, I, I worry about myself a lot because I see so many other things outside of the war on terror. That are, you know, What's going on in Sudan, you know, what's going on in Yemen, what's going on in UAE, all of these places, right? And I'm mm-hmm. just not spending enough time on any of it. I'm just wondering, subhanAllah, like, how do you? And all I can say is that, you know, we just have to try our hardest. We have to be better than who we are. And Charlie, yeah. like... You know, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has given us the ability as Muslims to to see that and to understand that and to connect that to our worship of Him. And there's something. Um, there's one particular chapter in the book which I found very interesting. I can't remember if it's a chapter or just a section mm. uh, where you talk about history mm-hmm. um, and you say, "I'll, I'll read the quote because I, I don't want to get it wrong." But you say, "If the Quran places so much importance on history, surely it cannot be the only history we can learn from." Right. And this is something that I have a, a, a bit of an issue with people mm-hmm. who don't see current affairs, mm-hmm. um, who see current affairs right in a vacuum. Right. So you mentioned like straight after that, you talk about how Donald Trump, um, if you read his rhetoric, it's very similar to the Nazis. Right. 
Um, but people will be like, oh, it's a different time. You know, that happened then. This is now. It's America, Germany. It's a different different ball game, right? And then you go on to talk about, and this is this this kind of blew me away. This this section here, you're talking about Iblis and the Pharaoh, mm-hmm. um, and how they use uh, the same technique of dividing people. Um, and when Pharaoh wanted to prolong slavery, um, he let the slaves continue to kind of infight. Right. But when they united, mm-hmm. um, he couldn't kind of control them anymore. Right. Um, and there's one quote which I which I really liked, and again I'll, I'll explain why. But you say, as a psychologist, anthropologist, and sociologist, Iblis has us beat. Um, and the notion for me of of Iblis, of Shaitan, of everything, it's like unfortunately we've compartmentalized far too much, mm-hmm. and so Iblis is always like, okay, Iblis is the devil. Iblis is the guy that whispers in our ear, whatever else. But we don't think in kind of real terms. Right. And when you're talking about the Pharaoh and Iblis and their kind of techniques and you link it to kind of modern day and how people have controlled people today, mm-hmm. that for me was, was quite um, eye-opening. Because I, mean, I never thought, sorry, yeah, sorry to, to, no, I'll, I'll let you jump in. No, but I never thought to kind of, because mm-hmm. you know, the Quran talks about like, oh, in this book, there are lessons for you, for the right. people who ponder. Right. And I'm like, okay, yeah, story, Musa, this, that, whatever, yeah. Noah's Ark. But, and, and there are lessons to learn. I've probably learned very basic lessons. Mm-hmm. But actually, the world around us, the world today, there's, there's so much in there that, are, that is parallel. Right. Um, and we, there are much deeper lessons to be learned. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for that. No, Um You know, there's that ayah in Surah Qasas. Um, it's one of the first few ayat where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes Pharaoh's modality of oppressing, right? He says that uh, Pharaoh, he split the society into portions and then he oppressed, hmm. uh, you know, Bani Israel. And I remember reading that, I think, subhanAllah, it's like a predicate. Like in order to oppress them, he first had to split the society into parts. And, you know, I mean, the, the whole book is the whole book is literally like learning lessons from the past, like looking back in order to understand where we are today. And, you know, that's why the civil rights era, um, apartheid, uh, the Holocaust, these are all sources that I take from because they were all sources that helped to form me as an activist. So it's not like I've gone to those sources specifically in order to make my argument. It's because those sources were always real for me in my working life, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, as I said, the Holocaust or the Irish Troubles, whatever it might be, right? So drawing upon this kind of recent political history and the literature that came out of it, but, you know, drawing on it alongside the Quran itself, because the Quran, again, I, you know, like we said earlier, it has, it has all of these ideas already built into it. And so, you know, what I really wanted to do was to get that across. And, and, you know, and sometimes things become real for you when you write in a way that up until that point, they've been a bit abstract. So, you know, I've always known about the story or for a long time, I've known about the story of Ashab al-Ukhdud, you know, in Surah al-Buruj, you know, these people that were were placed in this ditch of, of fire. And then you have the story in the Hadith literature of the mother who's about to jump into the fire, but she hesitates and the child says, you know, oh mother, you're on the truth. And, you know, she fl- flings herself in. So you kind of know this story that exists in the past, but it's it's still very, very abstract. And I remember Dr. Uthman Latif telling me about the word in Surah Al-Buruj, Qu'ud, that the soldiers that dig this pit and who start this fire and who are killing these, these, these newly converted Muslims, right? 
He says that the word that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses for them sitting is qu'ud and not julus, right? Julus is just like sitting, like mm. we're sitting now. But qu'ud is to sit in like, in a leisurely way. Like you're enjoying the spectacle. Enjoying. Right? Yeah. They're just chilling out while they're watching these people die. And I remember like listening to things, subhanAllah, like the language is so deep. But even then, it's very abstract. And then I read Lawrence Reese's history of the Holocaust uh, a couple of years ago. It was a newly published history of the Holocaust. And he describes a moment in the Auschwitz-Birkenau um, camp where, they were, where the crematorium was. Mm. And he's describing how these bodies are being burnt. Uh, there was a person who was sweeping over there. And they, they're, they're describing that these bodies are being burnt. And the SS soldiers, he, he's describing them sitting in a leisurely way. While this burning is taken, this is the language that he's that they're sitting in leisurely way, listening to Mozart as these bodies are burning, and and my mind went immediately to what Doctor Latif mm. was telling me about Qur'ud, right? So our recent history, there's nothing new, you know. When we study history, we realize that actually it's not that history necessarily repeats itself; yeah. it's that we see that history echoing throughout the ages because human beings don't change, and Iblis's method of messing with us. It, like it's, a, it's like a formula for him He knows exactly how weak we are And what, you know, what we will do In order to harm other people The kind of lies that we tell ourselves And, and how we become oppressors And oppressive, right? And so he's got his plan like mapped out He knows how to mess with us each and every occasion But the Quran gives us like a blueprint For how we understand his mm. oppressive nature And then how we can counteract that you know, which is through this kind of constant truth speaking, which is the hardest thing to do. You know, um, in Surah Al-Asr, Allah subhanahu wa says, you know, kind of, bil sab, right? Like, so enjoying truth, but he couples it with saying enjoying, enjoying patience. Mm. And you, th- you think, you wonder to yourself, why these two things? Because actually you realize that people, they generally, they can speak the truth once. It's easy. But when the state comes down on you for speaking your truth, when it, when it finally emerges with its full armory and its full kind of media outlet and it's attacking you and whatever. Now, now how strong is your truth in this situation? Yeah. You know, fine, Musa alayhi salam goes once. It's hard. It was hard to speak the truth for the first time, right? But it becomes harder when Fir'aun turns around and says, okay, right, you want to speak your truth when I've got like my all my armies and my ministers and my sorcerers and everything. You want to stay on this? Okay, I'm going to come at you much harder. So it gets harder and harder to stay on that truth. And I think that's part of the story of living in these times, where especially when we see people who were activists in our community once upon a time mm. become agents of the state, who become people who um, get positions uh, and you know, start working with governments that are you know, kind of doing all sorts of evil around the world. You know, even when they are kind of you know, religious figures, and they end up ultimately taking our rights away from us because they haven't stuck with the truth. They've compromised. Mm. And that is a very, very hard thing to do and to get over as well. The fact that we have, unfortunately, these people who turn to collaboration uh, with, the, with the injustices that are being per- perpetrated against us. I think that's an interesting one because... Uh, as I see it, there, there is a there is a debate, and, and I've I've heard it from all different sides, mm. and I find it very difficult because I, 
different levels, it means different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I'm talking about is the, the notion of changing a system from within. Sure. Um, because th- there is something to be said about working from within mm-hmm. to actually affect change. Right. Um, but then there's a quote that I love from Immortal Technique mm-hmm. in The Poverty of Philosophy, um, where he says that there's nothing wrong with, with uh, trying to change the system. Oh, sorry, nothing wrong with compromise in a situation. There's everything wrong with compromising yourself in a situation. Right. And people try to make change from within, but ultimately it's the system that changes them, right. not them that changes the system. Right. But then the difficulty also comes in terms of wanting to make change mm-hmm. um, and not being able to affect change from outside. And the reason I say it has different realities at different levels, because if we're talking about engaging with the government with prevent, I feel very strongly that we should not engage in any way whatsoever. Right. But if we're talking about working, like, let's say, on your local mosque committee, yeah. as an example, mm-hmm. and you might not be happy because it's, you know, you're not happy with the system, the way that people are doing things, mm-hmm. but you can make a change from, from within there. You're not sure. compromising anything in that way, sure. but it's very difficult because, you know, speaking your truth, and then you have to get into playing politics, yeah. right? Because you can't just speak your truth constantly because, right. you know, there are issues there. So... I feel like that's something, and and the interesting thing is, I, I feel like you know Muslims and as a as a wider community, we don't have a kind of set narrative on this. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their own opinion. Everyone has their own agenda. Right. What I've learned and what I've seen over the years is that ultimately, um, we can only judge people on their intentions. Right. And people might do things differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel free to disagree with me on this. Yeah, but sure. I feel I feel like you already yeah. do disagree with me. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the the latter stage of the book kind of deal with this, okay. right? You know, which, so I, I've only got about yeah. halfway through. No, so no, it's I, cool. I need, I need to get there. Um, in this version of the book, I, I posit like a test um, that I wonder, uh, I mean, which I'm happy for people to contradict and to push back on, to add to or to take away yeah. from, right? which I'm asking about how we know when we might have collaborated with the system of injustice. Like when we moved from being just somebody who's trying to be an insider in the system and make a change, as opposed to when we've actually become part of the system of injustice itself. Mm. And, you know, I quote some figures from um, America where they did a study of black police officers in Chicago, and they found that 30% of black police officers had a view towards black people that was indistinguishable from the Ku Klux Klan. Right, that they had internalized all of the racist views of white police officers and racist white police officers towards black people in exactly the same way. Wow. So when we talk about what it means to be an insider, right, we need to think very, very carefully about what it means to be an insider once you're there and what you're trying to do. And actually what, what, actually what messed me up was Surah Ghafir in the Quran. Because I thought I, when I was writing the book and my chapter on, it's a specific chapter on collaborators and collaboration. Okay, right? so I, I need yeah, to read that one. They, they, um, it sort of messed me up because there's a story of the secret believer. And, you know, the idea that I went in with was that anyone who collaborates, they're out. Like, forget about them. Mm. But, you know, you realize the secret believer who's this family member of Fir'aun, right? Allah's praising him as being a believer. Right? What does this guy do? He hides, he hides his faith from Fir'aun, but he's inside the system because when Fir'aun says, I'm going to kill Musa, he turns around and says, well, you know, would you kill a person just for saying his Lord is Allah? Right? Like, and then starts putting forward arguments to counteract Fir'aun in that, in that situation. And Fir'aun actually li- ends up listening to him. And he's like, oh, 
well, this guy, this guy is an insider yeah. because in order to get to that position, we have to make certain assumptions about him that to have that position where you're able to tell Fir'aun not to do something, yeah. you would have had to have seen the entire injustices and been witnessed in all the injustices that were going on against Bani Israel up until that point. And right? keep quiet. And keep quiet about it, right? And so, you know, but what I did think about this man is that he still spoke the truth when the moment mattered. Yeah. When like the when the when the community is suffering, when he needed to stick his head above the parapet and say something, he did, yeah. and he spoke truth, right? And I think that's that's really important. But when we think about whether or not we become potential collaborators, I think we need to think about how we personally benefit when we make a decision. When we say I need to be inside a certain area or a certain situation yeah. in order to help the community, right? How are you benefiting? And I'm not talking about just mon- money here. Right, but even the idea that we're whitewashing ourselves uh, in a system of structural racism, so that the system sees us as now okay, you're okay, you're one of the good ones, right? So if you're if you're using that position or to say, well, I'm one of the good ones and I'm against these bad guys playing the good Muslim, bad Muslim card, right? Then I think that's hugely problematic. Mm. And the other part of that is is your collaboration is your engagement is your being in the inside the system off the back of somebody else's oppression like for example if you enter into the system and the people that you're harming because of the role that you're playing is say for example palestinians and we've seen that and i specifically cite the example of the muslim leadership initiative in uh, in america yep. who do these sponsored trips to israel mm-hmm. we've now recently seen uh, a group of imams uh, from the UK, like Musharraf Hussein and others, go off on these sponsored trips to Israel as well, yeah. that are managed by I- Israeli companies, right? In my mind, that is off the back of you know the oppression that Palestinians face. I mean, like, sorry, but largely with MLI and these British guys, who were you as a bunch of like Desi imams and activists, right, to go over to to Palestine mm. and engage with Israelis? when Palestinians are telling you, we don't want you to do this, yeah. right? That's so important in this situation. So is your uh, engagement off the back of other people's oppression? I think we need to be asking those so, questions. So I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you on everything you've just said, but, yeah. but what, I, what I meant by what I said was that sometimes, mm-hmm. despite what might seem from the outside as obvious evidence of collaboration in that sense yeah i've found in conversation that people genuinely believe what they're doing is is sure for the best sure and this is this is where for me yeah it's like i i will entirely disagree yeah. with someone's uh, way of doing things and even their ideology and whatever else yeah but if they fundamentally believe that's right uh-huh. i personally can't see god as punishing them for that so i mean i've said that to muslim politicians who i've met with yeah um and i've said to them that look if you take a position that seemingly goes against what the community's activism is, right? You're just going to have to accept the fact that you're probably going to take hits for it, yeah. right? And if you have managed to square that away with Allah between you and Allah that, and you feel very confident about mm-hmm. what your end goal that you're trying to achieve is, then you're just going to have to accept the fact that our community responds on, on what it can see. And I think that they're entitled 
to respond on what they can see as well, right? That, what happens between an individual and Allah, that's between them, right? The secret believer is a secret believer. I'm sure Bani Israel were looking at him inside the palace, right? Thinking that guy's an out and out collaborator, probably didn't have a very good view of him, right? Mm-hmm. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala vindicates that person. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think it's very hard to do that. Like I said, with the black police officers, I think once you get inside a system, staying true to your ethics, I wouldn't want to swap places with somebody inside the system. I'll be honest with you. I think mm-hmm. it's a very, very hard thing to do. You know, you're right. Ultimately, though, it is it is a very difficult game to play, right? Um, and and it's a it's one of those things where at every turn you have to make a decision, mm-hmm. and you and and I, this is what I feel like when we're when we're engaging within systems in any sort of capacity, we have to constantly check ourselves. We have to constantly be reflective right. of it. Right. It can't be a case of you say, okay, I'm going to do this, and then that's it, yeah. and until I've reached my ultimate end goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need to right. take stock because there's it's a constant process. Mm-hmm. That's why I think that it's not like I don't like the black and white of you're a collaborator or you're not. Sure. Um, and I think that's where there's a lot more kind of nuance that needs to take place. And and as I said, I've this is over like I know you've been in the game what 15 plus years, yeah. I call it game, but you've been involved in the Muslim community actively and and with your work through Cage. For me, it's been five years of the Muslim vibe, um, and in that time. I've met so many different people with different perspectives, some that I ideologically completely align myself with and agree with, sure. others that I abhor. Right. Um, but ultimately what I've found in a lot of people is, a, is in essence an, an a sense of ikhlas right. that I can't deny. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and that's where as well, I think like the mm-hmm. network is really important mm-hmm. of being able to message someone and call them out on something. And I've had this where I've seen someone do something publicly mm-hmm. and I've, I've privately messaged them. I don't believe yeah. in like publicly calling someone out. I've messaged yeah. them even if I don't know them that well, and said, listen, bro, with all due respect, yeah. like this was atrocious, mm-hmm. I would consider taking it down. Yeah. And I found also that like people respect that a lot more sure. than, than everything just being this like big uh, song and dance that we make online. Of really so cool. you, and, you and I actually operate the same way. Yeah. The only thing that I would add as a nuance is that I think we have to make a distinction between a horizontal level kind of activism that's taking place in the community where we're benefiting each other all the time. We're in this conversation, right? Yeah. And when somebody takes a position within the structure of racism within the state mm. that has gives them a power to harm the community then, right? I think you, we have to make a distinction yeah. between people who are at our level, we're having these private conversations, we're DMing each other, we're saying, okay, look, that wasn't great. Have you thought about maybe, you know, have you looked at this person's work? They can help clarify some of the mistakes you made in your thinking around this thing, right? So we're doing that all the time. But... You know, I feel like if you take a position, like say, for example, with Prevent or this or any part of the structure of Prevent, right? Which you know, I think large scholarship that is that has been produced that is critical that has understanding about the history and trajectory of racism has placed Prevent within that. Mm. Then I think it's deeply, deeply problematic that you take that role, but also then how that harms those people who are then suffering on the ground level. So. You know, I, I do want us to like make these distinctions between like these vertical relationships mm. where there is power involved and authority involved okay. and how that authority then manifests itself on top of the community as opposed to then like how people like you and I, like you and I might have a disagreement about um, something we might say in the public domain, right? But at least we have the ability to reach out to one another and say, you know, bro, have you thought about this? Have you thought about thinking about this from a different yeah. perspective, right? But when it's the state, that person is a manifestation of policy and the way that policy 
uh, exerts itself yeah. on the community, right? And that's why I'm hoping that people, when we hold, when we're talking about these conversations, when we're having these conversations, right? Because I'm not into call-out culture, actually, surprisingly. Like, people don't, like, people see that. People love it, right? Well, people <laughs> assume that I do, but you, I don't actually engage with that. The only people that I, I hold to account on Twitter yeah. are people who have authority. Like, I don't go after, like, activists and stuff mm. who are part of the community grassroots scene, yeah. right? That's not my interest. My interest isn't, like, to, like, you know, have um, a big public spat with everyone within my community. My interest is to hold government and institutions that have authority mm. to account for the role that they play in perpetrating systems that harm. Yeah. You know, because we know what racism is now. We've studied racism for so long. We know how it manifests itself. We know how it harms communities. And because we know that, we are able to recognize it for what it is when we see it. And therefore, when it manifests itself within the logic of the war on terror, we have to call it out. Okay. Um, t time is getting away from us. Sure. There's there's one thing that I did want to discuss um, that I think is, is important to, to just briefly mention. Mm -hmm. um, in, in one of your chapters on uh, time and trauma, you talk about um, the story of Shaka Amar. Right. Um, but then you also go on to talk about being held for a month without charge. And that's something that, that, that the police can do and, and they have these sort of night raids where they break into someone's house and um, detain them. Mm. And what was interesting, I think, and it's something that people don't often think about, is that let's say that happens to you mm -hmm. and you, the police find you innocent and you're returned to your home and everything else, that your life doesn't necessarily return to normal. Right. Um, the impact that it has, and you, you kind of list out in bullet points almost the, the impact that it has on your family, on you as an individual, on the community, uh, on your neighbors, on like the fact that people have to choose whether they want to be your friend after this, if they want to associate with you. Also your job as well. Right. Um, and I thought that was um, worth worth discussing. Sure. And also there's a, there's a fact that you mentioned um, that I think from 2016, 2017, only 4% of people mm -hmm. that were arrested due to suspicion of terrorism were charged. Right. But the impact that it's had on their families and on their lives is devastating. Right. Um, and again, it's something that I've never thought about. And I don't think many people will think about. But you as someone who deals with these people on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. will be very aware of. So so right. what is it like for, for a typical person that's been through something like this? Sure. No, thank you. Um, you know, especially for people who have been raided. Mm. I mean, it's obviously not just the person who's raided. It's the whole family. It's the children they will experience the violence of that raid in very, very visceral ways. Um, this might be a slightly graphic example, but I'll, I'll try and keep it uh, halal uh, for the purpose of your uh, audience. But, and especially as men, when we're watching a kind of like a slapstick comedy or whatever on TV or maybe like a YouTube video and somebody gets hit in their kind of private area. Yeah. Most men... Well, in that moment, kind of lurch forward and wince just go, oh, bit. wince a little bit, yeah. right? When we do that, it's not because we're doing it optionally. It's because what's happened is that the body, that the the mind has seen something uh, that experienced in the past itself, right? It's called re-experiencing. And it sends a message to the body, to the brain to say, oh my God, that was horrible last time. Let's take ev you know evasive measures to just make sure... That's not happening to us again. Mm. So the body launches forward. And just from a stimulus, it's got nothing to do with you. It's on the TV. 
Like you're no in danger, you're not in danger, but your body has its own memory of trauma yeah. that is separate to the actual reality of the world that you live in. And so when the body senses a trauma that it's experienced in the past through any kind of stimulus that it remembers, then it, ma- it automatically goes into protection mode, right? And so that's what you're doing in that moment. Now you re- re-regulate very back very quickly because your mind's like, okay, no, 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 that's just on the TV. It's okay. Everybody calm down. We can go back to normal, right? Mm. But in extreme trauma, the ability of the body to re-regulate itself doesn't exist in the same way. It changes you physiologically forever. So uh, a friend of mine who was detained for seven days without charge, without trial, but the power under Counterterrorism um, Act allowed them to detain him for seven days and interrogate him for those seven days. He has changed forever now. There are things that trigger that memory of being in that prison cell for seven days and going through that interrogation that heightens his sense of paranoia so that he has these moments where the entire world and everything is against him. He has been physiologically changed. And this was over 10 years ago. But his body has been changed forever by this circumstance. Now, nobody talks about this, the fact that he has been changed forever, that children... You know, they still wet themselves in bed at night for years after their house has been raided. Because what's never done in the implementation of counterterrorism policy and the way that it is practiced is any long-term assessment on the on the long-term harm that any of these policies cause. Like, for example, prevent. They talk about, well, not that many people actually go to channel referrals. But you're saying that literally there's 7,000 people being referred to prevent every single year that's not even including the people who aren't referred right who aren't formally referred that they're still questioned about their beliefs you're saying that this is a neutral interaction that this is a neutral interaction there's nothing that changes for this person in terms of their life of course it changes have they not looked at that at all they have never done a long-term impact assessment study of any of these things and you, that's you, that's you my would point. Assume that they would have. They should do in any policy. You have to do long-term impact assessment studies, and they never do because they know what comes at the other end of it, which is the system of structural racism dis- completely disproportionately discriminates us and harms us. You know, and that's why I get really frustrated with people like praise like the former Independent Review of Terrorism Legislation, David Anderson, because David Anderson comes along in his very liberal way and he says, "Oh well, you know." It's not only Muslims who are being impacted this by this stuff. It's also some many people on the far right too. Just look mm. at the figures, you know. And he'll say something like seventy-five percent of Muslims are, are are referred, and twenty-five percent people on the far right. Okay, he goes, it's not equal, but there is still there's more people being referred, right? Until you give the public a maths lesson, and you have to do this stuff. You say, well, actually, everybody just calm down for a second because the seventy-five percent of referrals is coming from a population of 3 million Muslims. The 25% of referrals is coming from a population of 50 million uh, white non-Muslims, right? Now, as a ratio, that means a Muslim child right now in the UK is almost 50 times more likely to be referred than a non-Muslim child. That is discrimination by any stretch of the imagination. So we have children growing up in a world where their teachers who read predominantly, right, the Daily Mail, The Sun, the two most popular newspapers in the country, you know, the ta- the, the right-wing um, broadsheets like The Times and The Telegraph who constantly securitize us, going back to our initial conversation, who are now responsible for making a determination 
about whether or not our children are a potential future threat. Remember, that's where prevent sits. And you're saying that this has no impact, them taking them aside and saying, what's your view on the Palestinian, uh, on Palestine, Middle East conflicts, on uh, Iraq, on ISIS, on anything. You don't think that's going to have an impact on their relationship with you and authority? Mm. We had a kid, I think he was 13 years old. He came to the, went to the doctors complaining of a pain in his leg. And uh, the doctor started asking about ISIS. That child came to us and said, because under the prevent duty, right? He said, I'll never go to another doctor again as long as I live. Like his relationship with person who had a duty of care towards him yeah. was forever changed. Wow. Even my wife, my wife took my children to uh, the opticians. And the opticians, my, my son was eight at the time. He started asking my child about whether or not he had a girlfriend in very, very serious tones. And my wife said, the whole time I'm standing there, all I'm thinking of, is this a question that has been kind of taught through prevent in order to determine whether or not we're nice liberal parents who let children do whatever they want, right? Like that's like, because our relationship now to primary caregivers has been completely changed by the fact that this duty has been placed on them mm -hmm. to question us about our beliefs, to question us about our ideas. And so at a societal level, those relationships have been changed. And so when we talk about trauma, we talk about every single aspect now that, that the system of structural racism in the UK has complete hegemony over every single part of our lives. And so now we are in this survival mode where we make decisions that aren't necessarily in our long-term best interest, but we make them because we're just trying to survive. We just want to survive. Wow. Okay, um, I, I want to try and end on a, a bit of a positive. Hope sure. you give me a positive answer. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm going to try my best. As you know, I mean, thank you for that answer, but obviously it's quite heavy. It is, um, yeah. So uh, I, I want to ask you a question that you asked um, rhetorically in your book. Mm -hmm. um, you said regarding the advocacy and, and the work that you've done over the last 14 years, um, what did we achieve and was there ever any point in it? Right. So I'll ask you that question about right, the work you've been doing over the last 15 years. That's a really difficult question to answer. I mean, like, alhamdulillah, have our efforts helped to keep people out of prison who are unlawfully accused? Yeah, have they have, alhamdulillah. Have we pushed back against prevent alongside many others? To the extent that we help people understand that prevent was a problematic policy, alhamdulillah, I think you know Cage can claim some some role uh, in that. Even if from the other side they sometimes exaggerate the role that we've played uh, themselves. Um, but I think as Muslims we need to move beyond these types of metric-based responses to how we uh, understand um, the efficacy of the work that we do. Uh, I think sometimes we get caught in this rat race to understand ourselves based on a logic of like success, right? Worldly success. Mm. I think in order to understand where we are, we have to first ask ourselves questions around, do I feel comfortable that I'm doing something for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that my intention is is clean towards what I'm doing, that I'm not doing it for like, for, so people say about me, that, oh, look at Asim, he's so clever, he's producing these books and he's writing these articles and he's, you know, writing witty tweets or whatever, whatever it is, right? Mm. That I'm not doing it for the sake of my own personal kind of aggrandizement. I think th these are like much more important metrics because ultimately, like, 
like that this dunya is purely for the sake of something else and dragging ourselves back away from judging success from like worldly kind of metrics for it i think is so important i think as long as people engage in cage itself and those who are involved in activism in this space can say that you know we tried our best based on the resources that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us based on the mission that we believe was ethical and was right and was responsible towards our community uh and that we were constantly in a process of making istighfar throughout that uh and reminding ourselves that actually all of this comes back to one purpose which is ta'abud like is to worship is the worship of Allah then i think that we can we can start to move towards some kind of idea that um maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive us for all the other things in the world that we weren't able to get to um so. i don't think that you know i think that's that's where the hope lies hope is always with with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he will look at us and say you know i forgive you like you tried you didn't yeah. you did and and that's why like we're constantly like in this state of never being happy within ourselves right like we're hopeful of course because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us the salah as like this beautiful thing like five times a day like whatever you're doing you come back and you put your head on the floor and you 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 remind yourself that whatever it is that you're doing it's it, this is the place that it's being directed towards right and that is an amazing thing that is a gift that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us right mm. that's what the hope lies but at the same time like i think i don't think we should ever be like confident in ourselves like we should be we should have this lack of confidence in ourselves and pure hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right and that's the kind of relationship i think that kind of builds a, an attitude of success maybe and and hope and you know inshallah hopefully forgiveness moving to Allah i've i've realized just at the end of the interview that all your answers are only ever reflective <laughs> which is nice which is nice it's it's, uh, it's i don't uh, think i don't think it's easy to give like full out answers <laughs> to these things you know you don't do yes or no either do you <laughs> try not to um, but no thank you very much yeah, for your time today this has been uh, i mean we we've run about 20 minutes over but i've i've loved every second of it thank it's you. just been a really interesting conversation um and and yeah for for people that um enjoyed the conversation i guess uh, your book a virtue of disobedience is available everywhere pretty much Um I I definitely personally recommend reading it it's a fascinating read and one thing that you mentioned in the beginning which I really like is that you say you know if people have enjoyed it or if they have any thoughts on it to reach out to you and to kind of start a dialogue right um so, and I think that's the most important thing sure. as we mentioned earlier we're not always going to all agree on everything yeah. but dialogue is is key and and vital and I think that's something that we need more of within the Muslim community and also more broadly absolutely um but thank you very much for your time once again thank you So that was my conversation with Asim. Um one kind of almost instant reflection from my perspective is that I always find it very fascinating speaking to somebody who's kind of very much in the deep end of things dealing with a particular um issue or cause or campaign or whatever it might be because often you get like a very um intense but accurate perspective on things. What I mean by that is that often when we hear about cases um and you see things in the media you look at it as like one isolated incident and i think we spoke about this on the actual podcast itself um but when you're kind of there dealing with this on a daily basis you start to see a narrative and you start to understand a kind of trend and the direction that we're moving as uh, moving in as society but often to the kind of untrained eye or to someone who's not really that focused on this particular area 
um, it's difficult to to join the dots, if you know what I mean. Um, and so Asim and, and after the podcast, actually, we went out um, and we, we grabbed a bite to eat as well. And we had a fascinating conversation just more broadly about the community um, and the direction that we're going in. Um, and, and I think, yeah, it, it, this this book itself, I think, is a, is a very good starting place um, in terms of really getting your teeth into um, the meat of uh, activism but like almost God-centric activism and understanding why we should be campaigning for things and how to campaign for things and you know whilst obviously maintaining things like akhlaq and everything else um, but there's a, a chapter um, which I still need to read about collaborators in the book um, and, and I guess talking about power um, and understanding from our own perspectives if we're looking to engage um, within the system so to speak um, that we understand our intentions and, and what us I guess progressing as individuals might be doing to others and if we're doing that trampling on, on other people um, that's something we, we shouldn't do as kind of moral uh, upstanding sort of Muslims um, but yeah I, I, I genuinely love this conversation with Asim I thought it was really interesting everyone in the office actually usually everyone's got their headphones on and they're doing their work but everyone kind of listened in um, and and was just he just had so much to say and so much insight um, you know he's obviously been active in this area for 15 or so years um, an abundance of kind of stories and experience and I think you know we, we need to learn from individuals like him and others who have kind of been around the block and been dealing with some quite dark stuff that a lot of us are just insulated from or we insulate ourselves from i guess but yeah uh, that's it i guess for another podcast if this is the first podcast you're listening to be sure to subscribe um to the tmv podcast wherever you get your podcasts uh if you're already a subscriber then uh we would very much appreciate a rating and a review um doesn't need to be extensive just something short but the five stars would mean a lot to us um, and if you have any ideas, we've had we've had a few emails from people in the past, but if you have any ideas for subjects, guests, what you would like to see, any feedback generally on the podcast itself, do feel free to, to get in touch. My email address is salim at themuslimvibe.com. And yeah, inshallah, we will be back again next week with more great content. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.